and so is it is it worth thinking of different ages almost like different species? Mm. Does this does this translate maybe into a different type of uh, ecosystem? Like we're we are in relationship with something that is so drastically different from us, but we are dependent on because we were it or we will be it. Welcome back to Barefoot to Emmaus. I am Byron. And I'm Char. We're glad you're with us. Indeed you do. So, as always, it has come time to record a podcast. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we tend to choose podcast topics like basically even just minutes before. Sometimes. Uh, sometimes. Sometimes it's like, oh, I've been thinking about this for a while. And other times it's like, Byron, what are we going to talk about? Right. Like Geminist theology, you'd been preparing that kind of for like weeks. So today we are talking about age, um, age, age, uh, and there's a whole lot of ways to think about this. So I, what inspired me to, to go here? I think I was thinking again just about my grandpa and mm. like existential death, um, and time and maturity and things like that. And so, age by age, I kind of mean. Uh, I was even just reading something about Noah, uh, yesterday. And how he lived to be 950 years old. And like, so I just wanted to think like, what are the the theological implications of being old, being young, uh, the idea of tracing along a path of maturity. And this could be, this could be for an individual. This could be for a community. Um, so, so not just like time, but the passage of time. And that could mean at, at the highest level, like the highest level, like the age of the universe or the age of the church. Or, or like humanity, right? Like we, we talk about Eden as an infancy. And so growing up in maturity towards an eschatological like maturity. Um, like a metaphysical age. Yeah, yeah. Um, so less the structure of time, uh, less aeonion to aeonion. Yeah, more of like happy birthday to you type of age. <laughs> Interesting. And it sounds like the way that you're thinking about it is also in terms of mortality. So it's both living, but also how we contextualize living within the framework of dying. Yes. And understand what it is to be alive based on what it is to not. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's. I think that's that's a huge part of it. I guess I'm assuming the bounds of age and time that there's a forward march, but only after a certain point, and that is birth, and only until a certain point, and that is bodily death. So let me start with a question then, uh, as you're reflecting on mortality. Do you find that mortality helps us appreciate life and and perhaps we would not even be living outside of life then my first thought goes to the good place for those of who you who haven't seen it spoiler maybe skip a minute or so but in when they finally get to the good place mm-hmm. there's a sense of oh we can do whatever we want oh but now we've done everything we want after a certain amount of time. After a certain amount of time, yeah. Which, if you and, have infinite time. Yeah, so with the passage of time, without any death, with just ongoing living, you know, in a sense, you age because you remember. And so it's you can't experience something with the novelty of its first time because you remember. Mm. And so at some point, you're like, well, I've done everything and nothing's novel anymore. And there's something about the novelty 
that I crave and not just the reiteration of fat past experiences. And they decide one by one, no, actually it is death that is the ultimate fulfillment of life. And they choose to leave the good place. Yes. Um, I I get your point that is it is it the end or the ceasing of something that gives the thing itself context or meaning? Um, I would say that the context of the good place, at least, that view of heaven. This, this I was actually talking with um, Tyler McCulquin on the way here, that the idea of time, like how time works in a spiritual or eschatological, like theologically, what is time for God? What would mm-hmm. time be for us in heaven? Like, I think one of the issues... I don't know if you could call it aging, like you could call it experiencing, but I think part of age is age in context. And I think that requires some level of, of change or changeability. So uh, it's like having, having an infinite amount of time, I don't think quite just counts as age by itself. Um, Mm. I think age has to do with maturity and growth and change from past to future. And if you, if your external environment can't change because it's just, because it's infinite, maybe then I don't think you could respond to it. Right. How do I put this? Like, um, so like the elves in Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. ostensibly immortal, are they aging? Are they any older? So that's, that's a that's an instance where they Mm -hmm. are infinite in age or time or life, but the world around them changes. So it's actually the world that is aging while they remain the same, as opposed to, like, I guess that good place example is they neither are really changing. And I guess if you have, like, infinite time, you could do one thing and then move on to an infinite other thing. (laughs) Like... I don't know. There's something about that that doesn't quite capture aging to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do, all that to say, I do think that death does count as a bound of aging. Um, but not because, not in contrast to like an imaginary made up idea of like infinite time. Yeah, I think the example of the elves is a very good one. More than like the uh, elves of the Lord of the Rings rather than the. Um, what is it, Germer? The the Keebler? Keebler elves, yeah, yeah. A lot of rounds that sound like this. Fantas elves. And sure, sure. That I was just saying that to be silly. But uh, <laughs> um Yeah, that there is a sense of stillness. And I think you, you nailed it on the head when you say that they're not aging, because with our colloquial understanding of aging, there is something about even our experience within our own body changing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that being part of the environment. So perhaps the world around you is changing, but if you yourself as your own environment are not changing, then perhaps part of your experience of that is also stagnant and you can't age with it. And so that makes me wonder about the maturity of old age. You know, people talk about the elders mm. with a certain respect. Now in our modern capitalist society, that's not always valued, but in many cultures, that is. Well, it's not always valued. It's also not always exemplified. Sure, sure. Like, I'm, I am going to put some blame on old people for being not great all the time. <laughs> it's, but, not, it's not a one-sided thing. Sure. But what I think 
has been recognized about the wisdom of elders isn't just, oh, you've lived longer. Like that might be part of it, mm-hmm. but it's also, oh, and you getting older, there's a different way that you reflect on what it is to be alive. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do see the journey of aging as being one of a transformative relationship to the existence of life itself. Yes. Something that the elves, this is, I'm tying it up now, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that the elves might not actually get due to their immortality. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that articulates it really, really well. They are seen as wise, but I'm, I'm curious if a younger elf, like if that is, in that view, a context of age, like because they're 3,000 years old or whatever, they've just continued to gain whatever wisdom. Mm-hmm. And so it is increasing. It's just increasing so small incrementally that it seems like not changing anymore. Well, I guess I want to draw a distinguishing line between generic wisdom and the wisdom that we can get from lived experience and the wisdom that only comes from facing death and from facing mortality, that looking life in the eyes from a different angle, the angle of saying, I need to learn to part ways with you. You know, we were reading about um, joy and sorrow. There's that poem in the sermon that we read for preaching class. Uh, Was it Emily Dickinson? No, it was was the other one. Oh, yes, yeah. But basically, I don't remember the exact words of the poem, but it's saying joy I walked a hundred miles with joy yeah and, and though she said so she much she said so much I didn't learn anything and then I walked with sorrow and mm. though she said nothing it transformed my understanding of life or something you know something yeah. along those lines and I came away changed or yeah. something like that and I think sorrow and grief is a form of dying you know that something is dying something is getting lost and mm-hmm. what greater reflection on sorrow on limitedness on the on life as a liminality that life itself is not perpetual at mm-hmm. least not in our hum- our our fleshly existence in our corporeal material existence you know yeah yeah i wonder if that could come down to just consequences right like so, as as non-infinite beings either in time or whatever the things we do affect us and even if it doesn't affect us, it affects other people. And if we're in relationship with them, it'll it'll come back and affect us eventually. Like, the things we do will affect us. And that, I think, the way that that changes us is part of aging. Hmm. And it's the consequences of, like, it's, it's having to live with or being able to live with both the positive and negative consequences of our actions that I think give our actions meaning. I also think reflecting on not being around to see the things that we previously understood to have meaning. So our our relationships, our actions, the idea of why we do something in part being so that we can appreciate the fruit of it afterward, Mm -hmm. even if it's just the sense of pride in having done something well. You know, the idea of impacting history, for example, if you're around to see it or I'm thinking of all these artists who uh, post-mortem became famous. Mm. You know, it's like, well, can we really count that person as a successful artist because they never experienced that? You know, now they are just one who has produced successful art. 
there's something about the experience of embodying that that they never got a chance to have. I'm hmm. just curious that, yeah. you know, like when we reflect on all that we hold on to, that our hands are, are full of all this goodness, memories, relationships, love, purpose, whatever, and the sand starts to fall out of our fingers. Mm-hmm. You know, what we previously thought to be a bowl, we actually realize to be a sieve, you know, and we start to see it all dissipate. And there's some reckoning that takes place there. There's some tying up loose ends. You know, the idea of saying an actual goodbye. Mm-hmm. In so many languages, in Spanish, for example, typically you say, hasta luego, hasta mañana. There's some kind of like until tomorrow, until later. Mm-hmm. Um, the saying that actually says goodbye, adios, is literally saying, I send you to God. Which is God by you. Yeah, God Good, by you. Good, goodbye. goodbye. Yeah. So it's just interesting for me to think about having a very authentic and unadulterated experience of goodbye, or at least the the imminence of a goodbye that shapes the way that we see that relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, we talked, was it a couple of weeks ago now, about <laughs> it was it was some French sociologist who said the definition of the middle class is that they don't want to die a violent death. And then we thought a little bit about what that means for lower class. And it's like, oh, revolution is important enough to die for. Mm-hmm. And then what is it that like the upper class or, you know, the ultra wealthy class or whatever it is want is they want immortality. Mm. Right. Why, why is it that I, I don't think an average person wants to live forever. But there is this idea of, yeah, I mean, gosh, how do I, how do I move to this direction? There is this idealism of like being able to live forever. And to not age. And, and to not age. That's the only other thing. I think, um, gosh, there was um, some like webcomic that had this idea of like Superman, but mm-hmm. he aged. Ooh. Like he. Or like the Wolverine. Sure. Such a good movie, the the final Wolverine movie with Hugh Jackman. Yeah, the one with old Patrick Stewart and stuff. Yeah, where it's such a different story. Like Marvel, you know, has its flashy bang kind of, I don't want to say cheesy, but like very um, expectable, mm-hmm. predictable, that's what I'm looking for. Mm. <laughs> candy read, candy candy experience that, yeah. you know, they you know what you're getting in for. There might be some interesting allegories and whatever but essentially you get the same plot same kind of experience and it's a feel-good experience it's the reason people coming keep coming back to rom-coms that tell the exact same story there's Mm -hmm. something about that experience they they appreciate but the final wolverine movie where suddenly his healing powers are failing slowing down at slowing down yeah he's getting old Mm -hmm. and he has to reckon with what does that mean when his whole experience and he's like 400 years old or something right yeah you know he's only ever understood himself in the lens of immortality and watch so many people he cared about come and go. Right. And suddenly he finally has to reckon with that for himself. What does mortality, what does age mean for me? And, and so a phenomenal movie in that regard. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to your point. Yeah. I didn't know you liked that movie. Uh, yeah. That there's something, there's like a cruelty almost, or just a, a harsh reality of age and deterioration. Like, it, it makes sense to me that there's a lot of conservative old people. Say more. I mean, again, I mean, my, my thoughts are so scattered. I hope this just comes across as, like, interesting thought, interesting thought. But I think they are a little connected. But this idea of people wanting to live forever, but the limitation 
on that is deterioration. It's not just life, it's quality of life. Mm. That there's, for people who, gosh, I'm going to try to say this in a way mm. that's outside of accidental, unexpected, or particularly potent disease-related phenomena, mm-hmm. the understanding that we have of death is a gradual one. You know, so there are people who die immediately, mm-hmm. who die in what we would consider to be early. People die before their time, which is its own idea, which, you know, as you're <laughs> talking about, idea. what is a good life? What is a whole life? Well, I mean, yeah, we're, we, have to preach all the, we have to preach these funeral sermons coming up for mm-hmm. class, and we just spend a whole class talking about, like, what makes a good life and, and what makes a good sermon and the fact that there's so many different emotions when people die in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, but by and large, we think about death as something that approaches gradually. You know, we, we think about life as having its peak. I mean, even they talk about muscular development Yeah. for all people. I think maybe, you know, depending on when you hit puberty, it might look different. But essentially, at 25, you start to deteriorate. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it. Uh, and it's a very, very slow deterioration. But rather than building, being on the up and up and building more muscle, you get to a point where you slowly start to dip off and obviously you can work out and you can do other things that can still yeah you could push muscle it. But, but like teenagers don't have to do anything <laughs> yeah <laughs> automatic yeah generally and so there is a sense of a deterioration there's a sense of a slow oh, journey towards the end yeah and we look at people in their old old age and oftentimes their condition parallels in some regards infancy mm. mm-hmm. you know that there's this exit from the, the primordial, <laughs> this entrance into the liminal of this world of life mm-hmm. that reaches a certain peak around mid-20s, depending on how you frame the, maybe mid-30s, 40s, if you're thinking career-wise, you know, there are different metrics, right? Mm. But then ultimately, like, you retire, and even if you try to hold on, like, your capacity to do whatever work deteriorates as your body and your brain deteriorate. Right. You know, and so everything slows down, and you often end up back in diapers and end up dependent. No longer being able to walk and yeah. Yeah, being dependent. Exactly. And there's something wild about that, that um, age, like you said, it, it deteriorates. It's a slow process where we see the end coming, even if we can't predict its exact moment. Right. I think one of the things that I kind of realized early on, just from growing up in, in Palestine and just the way that my family lived in the Middle East and and the way that my dad as a philosophy teacher talked about some of the like differences. And I just noticed this as, as a different difference between the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament that there's some things there, there seems to be something a little pessimistic mm. about the Hebrew Bible and the direction it's kind of pointing to in terms of humans. Uh, and like even specifically, like ironically, this isn't getting more drawn out. It, like Adam lived to be 970 something years old. Uh, Methuselah lived to be 996, 69. Uh, Like you get all of these really, really old people right at the beginning. And I've generally just kind of understood that to be this idea of like proximity to creation. Mm -hmm. Like these people. And to immortality, the sense of Garden of Eden having the potential for that. 
yeah, being eating of the fruit of life. Potentially being designed for that. Yeah. And then you get Genesis 6, right before the flood, when God says humanity will only, like the, the upper limit of humanity will be 120. And the, the Hebrew of that verse is actually a little bit hard to figure out. Is God saying people, humans, will not live past 120 years, like no random individual? And it's generally true that that seems to be, like, for humans, the upper limit of age. Sure. But as medical technology improves, I'm sure we'll, we'll surpass that yeah. relatively commonly. So that there would be weird. There have a small handful of people who have right. surpassed 120. So Right. Even without, yeah, even it just naturally. So it doesn't make sense for it to be that, although enforcing the idea of that is still, like, I'm still recovering from my biblical literalist upbringing. Sure. I think, um, I think this we can view that as, again, part of the oral history where a people is reflecting on yeah. the reality that, you know, age is not generally going to get past that point. Right. Um, or is it saying that, because uh, I think if you calculate it out, actually it's also saying that from that declaration, God is just waiting for all of Noah's ancestors to die. And so then Noah, so so God is saying humans in general are not going to live like, after 120 years from this declaration, God's going to wipe out the earth. And mm-hmm. that's, that is what happens with the flood. So, anyway, just interesting ideas on age there. But oh, the, the point is that the Old Testament presupposes, I think, a type of deterioration of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff is getting worse and worse. And therefore, we need God. Like, we need a Messiah. Now, I don't know. This is my own just kind of ignorance and hopefully humility. I don't know how that mixes with the Jewish idea of, like, one of the reasons on the whole that I've heard that Jewish people didn't buy that Jesus was the Messiah was that there's still problems um, and that humanity needs to, like, work together to make this world good enough for the Messiah to then come. Hmm. And if and when that happens, then problems will cease. But anyway, but so so I don't know how that happens with their kind of like pessimistic view of the deterioration of the earth and people and all of that. I I think this is reversed or reclaimed or or like kickstarted again. Uh, in my opinion, by Jesus, mm. that God incarnating into humanity restarts, revitalizes the human condition in some way where the end, even if we are still to die a physical death, is actually pointing into new life. It's, it's kind of like invalidating the narrative that, that aging and death is the, like, the main story. Yeah. There's kind of this, like, even Jesus is quoting and says, like, no one is greater than, like, Jesus is trying to, like, put himself in the Psalms. And he say, David wrote the Psalms, right? And so why is it that David says to... If the Messiah is the son of David and the Messiah says, like, my my Lord said to my Lord, mm-hmm. or like I said to my Lord or whatever. And it's like, well, if he's talking about the Messiah, who is his son? How can he be greater? How can his son be greater than him? There's this like, oh, the good old days, especially, I'm sure, popular and easy in the time when Israel was occupied by Rome. Looking back to when they had a king and all. But, but there's this idea that, like, you can't be greater than the father your own father, which just means like, okay, well, if you can't be greater, then that means you can only be worse or equal to. Mm -hmm. And I doubt people think that they're always equal to 
the great men of the past. Sure. So anyway, there there just seems to be this like and we certainly tend to romanticize the past too. Yes. Yeah. You you say that you're greater than our father Abraham or right. You know, there's that scripture. Um, or was it uh, Jacob? Right. You you think that you're better than our ancestor Jacob? Mm. Mm-hmm. It was something about drinking from the well or something. I can't remember. The exact Who built context. this well? It yeah, was yeah, yeah. yeah, Samaritan woman, Saint Fotini. So, this idea of Jesus being the point of transition, where the increasing degradation finds new hope, new life, new trajectory, to move towards life again, in the way that it was moving away from life with a shorter and shorter lifespan away from Eden. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's at least a hunch I've been kind of holding in the back of my head for many, many years now, and I've never really externalized or externalized it or articulated it, and it doesn't come across as, like, well-founded or solid as I thought it would. But, right, because I don't even know, Jesus seems to give meaning to life and a direction, but it's not... Human life, right? Right, right, right. life, yeah, yeah. But not by denying death, but by reclaiming death. So that death, the end of life, the aging process, isn't isn't the end. Mm-hmm. But there's a new birth. Like, I don't know, even that idea that Father Micah uh, talked about of like, well, the order of creation doesn't go birth, life, death. It goes life, death, birth. Right? Adam and Eve weren't born. They were created alive mm-hmm. from the beginning. They didn't have belly buttons, presumably. <laughs> Maybe Eve did, depending on your Geminist theology. <laughs> I had that question last time. If she came out of Adam's womb? Right. <laughs> no, I, I think it's it's the idea of like a cell splitting, right? Like they yeah. came from the same stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but God could have been like, oh, I'm going to give you a belly button because in the future y'all are going to have belly buttons and I don't want you to feel weird about it. <laughs> could have been. God created a lot of other weird stuff. Mm, tell me about it. Where was I going with that? Well, oh, birth, life, death. Yeah. Um, that in fact, instead, and this is just, oh, this is the amazing thing that God does, is God doesn't negate. I don't, I don't think God negates very much. Mm. God reclaims it. God redeems it. God fixes it. Will, will, you know, there, there is a pruning metaphor in the New Testament. There's a, mm. there's a deeply relevant, like, I'm going to cut that stuff off and burn it. Yeah, and purifying, right? Right. And, and is destroying it? Destroying the impurities. Yes. And you even, uh, we got on this question of like, is all knowledge God's knowledge and and all sorts of things. Like what gets eliminated, if anything, this is a conversation we kind of have going on. But rather than, rather than destroying death, rather than, you know, negating age even, well, death at least, my question is, is what do we do with age? Usually God will redeem it or reclaim it or like, filter it through God's self so that the next thing... So God creates birth in response to death. And I just think that's so freaking brilliant. And that that leads to this kind of age-to-age, maybe reincarnation-y type of view of time. And time is not directly our topic today, but... Yeah, I, w- I wonder how much is a redemption versus an accommodation, right? Like thinking about Adam and Eve and their shame, the first clothing was an accommodation. And I would say now, culturally, there are ways that clothing has been redeemed in terms of a place to express beauty Mm -hmm. and identity and culture, you know? So I think that that reclamation has happened within the human story, but initially it was an accommodation. And I wonder too, the idea of birth, you know, if Adam and Eve 
two lonely people couldn't birth, couldn't have children, they die and it, the human story is over. Well, they wouldn't die. But no, leaving the garden, though. Oh, Becoming mortal, yes. Right? Okay. You know, so without birth, there would be no human story that goes on. They would be the end all. And so in some ways, we can look to that birth as an accommodation more than a redemption. Now, that I think there are certainly redemptive aspects to it and thinking about the beauty of new life and the idea of uh, the miracle of conception and birth and ways that that communicates God's glory. And, in, and I think the ultimate redemption is how God embodied that God's self. You know, being born as Jesus was the ultimate redemption, kind of in the Gregory of Nazianzus way. Mm-hmm. Um, but thinking about the different frameworks of uh, accommodation versus uh, reclamation or redemption, mm-hmm. and with Jesus dying, which I believe was what, that was the embodiment, the, perhaps the greatest embodiment, potentially save for his birth, of humanity. That Jesus wouldn't have embodied the whole human story if not for the death. Mm-hmm. And in doing so would not have been able to penetrate our deepest humanity mm-hmm. uh, in order to reach us. Um, and what he does then is in not even being, well, he does he say he's the firstborn of creation. So there's some sense of birth that is happening, not just a sense of upending that death, mm-hmm. but resurrection in some ways is kind of like, ha I beat you, death. You know, death no longer has a sting. There's an undermining of that rather than a redemption of death. Mm. But I but I think even, you know, in the human story that by not eradicating death, there is something to be said about the way that God uses death for God's story. And I guess this gets back to our question of aging and how death can provide a certain lens of acceptance and a certain wisdom to the way that we look at life and the way that we think about age. Right. But... I mean, maybe this is a little bit of the weird thing. But Jesus dies at 33. Mm-hmm. Which oh. I think was kind of average for that time. Um, I don't know if it was average. They, I don't think they lived nearly as long as we no, lived today. No, 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 no. Not to like 80. But I would imagine well, at like least... His mom was still around, so... Right, his mom was still around. Paul, evidently, my students did some Googling and figured out that Paul was the same age as Jesus. And Paul continued to like live until he was executed. Like, he would have continued. Like, John presumably lived till he was 90 or whatever to mm. go write Revelation. Like, I, I think I think it's presumable that people could have lived significantly longer. Sure, sure. Um, so you get you get a similar kind of slight, right? You, you have to you have to just kind of accept the idea that Jesus incarnating what he did did, in fact, redeem all of humanity. Right, in the same way that a woman can look at Jesus and be like, okay, I guess I just have to believe or assume that my womanness is redeemed by Christ's incarnation, even if he incarnated specifically as a man. Mm-hmm. Right. This is that this is that th- these are the that classic limitation to Nazianzus's thing. It's like, well, if Christ redeemed stuff by incarnating it, what did Christ not incarnate? Mm-hmm. You know, it, it takes a tiny bit of suspension of disbelief. Like we we know that yes, Christ incarnating human humanity in general redeemed all of humanity. Mm-hmm. But I think there's this similar tension with a woman looking at Jesus and being like, "Well, that was still God incarnating a masculine experience." 
Mm-hmm. And I think similarly, someone who is older than 33, <laughs> presumably significantly older, there's some aspect that is harder to see God represented in. Sure, because he had an immediate death. Again, the idea of the slow, begrudging walk towards death was not Christ's experience, unless you think about like him knowing his fate and there's a certain... Yeah, I actually think you there could be quite a moving sermon on in Holy Week, like uh, which which gospel is it that the march towards Jerusalem is a huge like central component? I think it might be Mark. I was going to say John. John has like th- the three cycles of oh, Jerusalem, yeah. of visits to Jerusalem. Well, then I I don't know. Is it John the one that like does the three cycles spread out? Yeah. But like one of them, and I I, th- I thought it might have been Mark, um, but you did Mark camp and. <laughs> forever ago many years ago yeah ages ago you could say oh i think i think you could do like jesus expected his own death jesus maybe in that way incarnated the the foreknowledge of a long kind of well, he, he certainly expected his death if we take the gospel accounts seriously the way that he forecasted to his disciples he told them foretold this is what is going to come yeah you know he was aware of what was coming. But with but I I, th- I still think like other than the idea of like even God as a man, the big white beard isn't necessarily an like I don't I don't know. I've like it is kind of a grandfatherly image. But it's not necessarily an old image. I don't know. Anyway, I I'd want to move into and like ask about this question of maturity and age. But um even in evolution, there's something called the the shadow of evolution, mm-hmm. uh, which is if evolution is a process driven by fitness and fitness is a definition of how many babies you have and how healthy they are and all that, then the evolution shadow is anything that happens to you after you've had, after you are mostly babying age. Sure. Right. And humans as social animals and many animals as social animals, like, like how many species of animals die right after they give birth? Lots of bugs, tons of mollusks, like lots of creatures. Some get eaten. Some some get eaten, like spiders, mm-hmm. specifically right after they mate, not even, you know, give birth. That's that's the male experience to some extent. <laughs> but like menopause is one of those things or right like evolution has very little reason to to keep a being alive after they've had babies, except, I mean, as I said, human, for, yeah, yeah, humans are social animals. So, this is one of the like explanations of homosexuality that like it is actually more beneficial to have a helpful gay uncle around, <laughs> um, or like gay cousins in your community to help raise kids. Um, that's at least one evolutionary explanation I've heard for uh, homosexuality. It's interesting. But there is sort of a, uh, like a non-necessariness, that's a better way to say that, of of age in a certain way of thinking. And I don't think that's right. I don't think that's kind. Like, I'd, I hope you didn't hear my, my kind of flippant comment earlier that, like, oh, the idea of an old, wise elder, like, goes two ways. Like, I think, I think it does, but... People are not expected to be old, wise elders in this culture anymore. And so they don't become that oftentimes. Um, And I'm not putting the blame entirely on, like, many old people for not fulfilling that. 
I don't know. Like we don't, it's a huge problem that we don't take care of our elders, even intergenerationally, like within families. Like I'm, I'm quite happy that my family is uh, buying a farm and going to live in some big intergenerational complex. Like yeah. presumably after my grandma isn't allowed, isn't able to like live on her own anymore instead of letting her be alone not alone I like at this retirement community thing with more intense care like I don't know that she'll come and live with my family yeah there is something about age being something that is disparate that we're not all at the same age you know that there are young and old mm. to this idea of an elder that allows the lessons of age and mortality, imminent mortality and death to be communicated to the younger generations too. Mm -hmm. The idea of an elder is one, you know, who, at least as I see it, someone who provides wisdom and stability as well as also being open. Like it is a two-way road of learning from the visionary idealism of the young generation, the sense of hope, transformation, change, but then also you're talking about conservatism and there's a sense of providing maybe stability mm. of how things have been and, and what the good is of how those things have been. Um, but also to reflect on the whole journey. You know, we're singing today in chapel, Come with me for the journey is long. Come with me for the journey is long. And there is a, a mutuality of that. Mm. that you are coming with me. Mm. And ideally, you're talking about your intergenerational future household. That is one that transcends the boundaries of age where the young and the old are together and shaping each other for a broader picture of the whole of what it is to be alive. You know, I think the wisdom of the elder is meant to be guiding the younger. Mm. And in some ways, the visions, the dreams of the young generation should be challenging and, and providing youthfulness to the elders too. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a strong direction that, that some of this conversation could go in terms of focusing on the old side of age. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also the young side of age. Yeah. You know, Jesus says a couple things, you know, let the little children come unto me. That's an age comment. Is there something inherent about being young that, connects with childlikeness mm -hmm. um, that is important for the kingdom of heaven or whatever. Um, or even, is it first or second Timothy that says like, let no one look down on you because you are young. Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. I have so many thoughts about what Jesus meant by that, mm. but I think most umbrella wise, yes, there is a wisdom of the embodied experience of youth and thinking even, infancy again there's a dependency and there's something about that kind of deep connection and need for others which is inhibiting as we develop for us to extend and expand and reach out and so that's where you know an issue of codependency comes in of like where was your identity if it's rooted in the instability of relationships you depend on as opposed to the stability of your personal being. Hmm. But I think that has to be held in hand 
or intention with the vitality of relationship and dependence that we are not who we are outside of other people. Mm -hmm. And children demonstrate that. I mean, just thinking about a child crying for its mother's breast as something that is demonstrating its most innate bodily need for not just nutrition, but connection. Mm. You know, I think they, I don't know how you would ethically do this study, but I feel like I've heard of research that has shown that children do not develop without human connection. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about all of that, that age, you know, we, we get this false sense of humanity Again, this idea of the peak, whether it be in our physical development, career development, whatever, like that feels like the peak of life. You know, and in some ways it is the peak of this life. But again, God's upside down kingdom looks the opposite. That's where the infants are actually the closest to understanding or the old people are the closest to understanding. Mm -hmm. The people who are furthest away from what life says, what this world says is the peak, somehow intuitively, intuitively have their own wisdom of what God's ways are. And and I think part of that is this idea of dependence. Part of it is a sense of, you know, we should live this life as if we are fully dependent on God because on a spiritual sense, we absolutely are. Mm-hmm. And we deceive ourselves when we don't allow ourselves to consider how all-encompassing that is. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts about children age, infancy age? <sighs> there's there's so much that's tied up with development, right? Youth happens much quicker than the rest of our lives, I think. Mm, yeah. Just the, the transitions between stages, I think. And we identify those stages, but I but the the scenarios I think are different much quicker, right? Even in um, pastoral care of adolescence, we talk about infancy versus the needs and the behavioral differences in uh, early childhood versus then adolescence. And then you've got this really long chunk of adulthood. And then you've got this also relatively long chunk of like old being old Mm. elderly. And so you go through like three or four different stages within 25 years. And given how long you live, presumably, like there's just a lot that changes physiologically. Like <laughs> studying oceanography, it's really, really interesting to see juvenile stages of fish or crustaceans or mollusks, like or jellyfish, for instance. Like so many creatures are essentially there, there's a number of species that until we got genetic testing on them, we didn't know that this was just the infant stage of a different animal. Right, like we mammals, particularly, this is a little easier to see. Like a baby rhino looks like a small rhino, or a baby human looks like a small human. But like a baby jellyfish looks nothing like an adult jellyfish, mm. uh, or like a baby crustacean, nothing like an adult crustacean. You get these juvenile stages. Even thinking like tadpoles. To oh frogs. my gosh! <laughs> yeah, or or bugs that go through metamorphosis. Uh-huh. And so is it is it worth thinking of different ages almost like different species? 
Hmm. Does this does this translate maybe into a different type of uh, ecosystem? Like we're we are in relationship with something that is so drastically different from us, but we are dependent on because we were it or we will be it. And I think you could you could draw a similar thing with like our environment and humanity is just like living biological homo sapienism is just the infant stage of becoming a tree later. Like a tree is our grandfather or a mountain on the on the largest scale is our womb. So I think you could take but but specifically you, you, that that was t- that was an interesting thing that came into my head. But specifically, uh, you were asking about like youth and the young side of things that. Is it fair to blame some of the differences or not blame? That's too strong of a word, but to identify some of the causes for the way that kids are based on just physiology. Right. Mm. Are teenagers cottage cheese brains because their <laughs> frontal cortexes aren't formed yet. That's a phrase for my some, dad. <laughs> some very brilliant teenagers. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> In some ways, I I feel like I was more brilliant as a teenager. Samezies, or even just working with some of these teenagers for Bible study or whatever. Like, oh, the creativity that they can have. There's also the expectations that shift. I was attending this. It's called a charrette. It's basically a spiritual historical inventory of the church to look at where it's been and where it's going. And they were considering a new architectural project and how that might change. Even, like, is that a Jewish term? No, I think it's uh, French. Uh, anyway, people were staunchly defending this preschool that is part of the identity of the church. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's technically a separate organization, but the relationship is so intimate with the church and it uses church space and everything like that. Mm. And one guy was talking about the importance of play for development, which, you know, psychologically, sociologically, like that's absolutely true, um, that children need play. But I'm like, do we not all need play? Mm. Like, where do we get the idea that play is suddenly no longer a thing we need? Mm. (laughs) Uh, Which maybe goes to your question of like being different species or if that's even a a way to, (laughs) you know, consider. Yeah. Um, I think one of the challenges of adolescence is the physiological developments and the change in the way that we experience our own bodies, mm-hmm. but also with that, a deep transition of the expectations that are put on us yeah. more and more academically, we we move away from play mm-hmm. and we move towards this nine to five, five kind of model to prepare us for college, to prepare us for the workforce, you know, and we are taught certain things rather than given permission and space and guidance to explore certain things mm-hmm. and certain ways of thinking and being um, that I, I honestly view as a tragedy, mm-hmm. a failure of our public school system or just our, our educational theories entirely. But when we think about what it is to be productive, I mean, even maybe even that's an issue, <laughs> prioritizing productivity, but uh, to think about creation, and thinking about it in terms of capitalism, in terms of how it, something can be monetized and transactional as opposed to how something can be beautiful. Because mm. play to me is, is the creation or of something. Fun. Yeah, I think, I think fun would be to me a subset of beauty. Huh. That, that we are creating something that Maybe. is good. Yeah. And, and, and is good for the sake of it being good, not for what it does for anyone else. Mm-hmm. You know, it just is. And, and it can be celebrated for its goodness. And yeah, so, so I, I wonder about that. Yeah. (laughs) 
I wonder. Yeah, Dr. Hines was is not as much a fan of the idea of basing life stages off of chemical or behavioral mm-hmm. or like behavior off of chemical developmental things um because so much of it is is nurture, not just nature. Yeah. Um right? I mean, I'm trying to think even we don't know. Like we fundamentally don't know what humans are actually designed to do mm. because we are so we are such acculturated animals that right like the idea of of teenagers going to school or or youth going to school for almost two decades yeah. um is pretty wild mm-hmm. right to to lock people in rooms to learn stuff to prepare them for the quote unquote real world for a quarter of their life. Yeah. <laughs> and the most fun, like the most dynamic part of their life. Like what is what does that do? Um and obviously like that's not the worst thing in the world. Like society hasn't collapsed entirely. I mean even I don't know what is society. What but whatever. <laughs> in many um, ways society's propped up by that system. Yeah. We train people to take over. Yeah. But but even like Montessori schools like Jean-Jacques Rousseau had this idea like, oh, you'll just discover what it means to be human from playing, from being in nature. Yeah. Or, or Bell Hooks has this idea of education as uh, the discovery, the, the liberation from oppressive systems to being more human. Mm. Like there's so, there's so many different types of philosophical ways of approaching humans and particularly children that we can really just fit into so many of them, mm. right? Like I, even just studying history, if you go back, like why do we have the summer? Why, why summer vacation? Well, it's because that's when the seasons, that, that's when like farms have the most work to do and they need the kids to do that work. At least they did 50 years, a uh, hundred years ago. Yeah. Right. That was the purpose of summer vacation. It was because work and farm work, agriculture took precedence over learning. Mm-hmm. But now we just, now we just have a summer vacation because I don't know, school's too hard <laughs> or it's like school is too dehumanizing and you need a break for some amount of time. Like, I, I don't know, like why isn't life just education anymore? Anyway. So, so all this to say, like develop, we, we don't know what natural human development is because we've built structures and humans are adaptive enough to have fit within those structures. And to some extent, some structures are changing so quickly, but we adapt to them quickly enough that, right, like it's not natural for humans to see, to have this much exposure to artificial light, right? The fact that I could have light on through my eyeballs for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours, well into the night. 24-7, you could. You could. And that messes with natural biological production. Absolutely. Same thing with the amount of sugar that we have. Same thing with maybe even the amount of like social interaction and information that we're exposed to. Like, I have a hard time making claims as to what is actually human or to what is actually like inherent about childhood. Right. So I can point to like cottage cheese brain, lack of developmental prefrontal cortex stuff. But like, that's just, and we can point to that and say like, look, this is biological. But Like, is it? Like, yes, these things will naturally happen to every human, presumably, within every, like, healthy, typically functioning human. But, like, what we do with that 
in our situation. I'm even just trying to think like not every kid has that experience of play or of education, right? You, you have like traumatized people who grow up too fast. So where does maturity fit into all of this? I think. I mean, even just thinking about refugees. Right. Right. Or black communities, you know, where a boy is, a young man is treated as a man at home because there's, he doesn't have a father or whatever. And then he's treated like a boy at school. There are restrictions and limitations based on our lived experiences, I think, to that state of play. But I remember hearing about these uh, people who visited refugee camps and remarking about how even in the context of this trauma, the children would find ways to play. Mm -hmm. And I think that is true of all children, that doesn't mean you are devoting as much time to play or that the play looks like a certain thing. But I, in some ways, think that's one of the most human things about us is this non-serious engagement. Non-serious meaning, you know, what we have constructed to be important in this world is actually like you said, very cultural and not very human yeah. in, our, in our essence. And we revert to our humanity one way or another, to that play, to social connection, to to rest. You know, and, and, and when we don't get those in healthy ways, I think it leads to many other problems. Do you see any, like other than the honestly kind of vague like jesus never just defines what it means to be like a child mm-hmm. like people have all these different theories like does it mean this sense of dependence does it mean this sense of uh innocent wonder does it mean this Trust. asking questions yeah. Trust. yeah it could be any number of things that curiosity yeah rest i like that you pointed out rest i don't think rest and play are necessarily synonymous especially my understanding of sabbath is like non-action huh i said no play no play because because play would involve take you know there were restrictions on how many steps you could take and you can't like play around in the backyard if you're if you're counting steps well i also wonder you know if the cultural understanding of rest or sabbath shabbat was the same as god's intention of rest those don't necessarily have to be the same thing yeah but it does it does raise so you're wondering if, where where are the strong biblical like points towards play? Like how much of the Bible is written towards kids? Like, like it seems a pretty <laughs> adult book. Yeah. Except for maybe Proverbs, which now I have to do a biblical exegesis exam on. Um, Proverbs is built as this kind of moral lesson towards youth. It's relevant, presumably, for our whole lives, but I think I mean, I, I'm going to continue to do my research because I'm going to need to. I mean, it talks about alcohol it talks about life partners you think that is meant for i mean children? you you have sex ed before you have sex like in in schools sure, in classes sure. like at least you, i hope so <laughs> yeah, probably hopefully uh in a good society maybe right the conversations around like these things should probably start before they actually happen yeah absolutely but i think it says like uh, yeah i mean i i thought i remember even in the um Bible content exam, 
a couple questions about like who is Proverbs written to, and I think it's written to kids. Hmm. But it's not very fun. <laughs> it's no, not a fun book. No, it's not. So yeah, there's. Oh, I mean, I don't know what in the Bible is written to kids. Arguably, Jesus's teachings, because his disciples apparently are like mostly teenagers. Was yeah, John might have been as young as twelve or fourteen or something. And only three of them paid the temple tax. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know. Peter was married. But people could also get married pretty young in those cultures. Yeah, usually less often boys, I think. But Yeah, which, you know, it's a very different picture when we think about Jesus hanging around these teenagers. <laughs> um, in, in terms of like right. how... Right, he must have been so fun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and think about it. You know, he went to these parties, uh-huh. right? Like he would... And he was the life of the party. You know, that as the party's running out, he's like, more wine. Like, <laughs> you know, that I think it's pretty clear to look at Jesus and the way that he approached life and to see one of exuberance. And, you know, I came that you might have life and life abundant. And life abundant to me means full humanity, like live into the fullness of your humanity. And again, it seems like Jesus modeled that there is a serious call in a way that that is challenging. And I'm leading you like sheep among wolves and uh, carry your cross and, and like a heaviness to all of that. But there's also this sense of freedom. And in that freedom, a lightheartedness that we see modeled better by Jesus than say John the baptizer, right. who kind of emphasized this prophetic witness of uh, self-limitation as important as that message is. You know, that that Mary was the one who was uh, praised when Martha was taking care of being more adult, so to speak. You know, taking care of setting up. Oh, Mary and Martha. Yeah. Yeah. Um, setting up the table and, and, and allowing the space to be prepared. And it seems like Jesus was very type B in that moment. <laughs> He's like, just be just be in the moment. Yeah. Just be with me right now. Yeah. And yeah. Presumably Mary, the Theotokos, Jesus' mom was 12, 14, maybe on the older end, 16, when she had Jesus. Right, I was remarking in class a couple weeks ago, there's all these theologies of marginalization, but one of the biggest areas of marginalization in this society, at least, is youth, is being young. Like, you're not sent, this society is not built for you. You don't have tons of voice unless it's intentionally given to you. It's hard to grab that or seek that or make that a thing. And so has there ever really been a youth, a youthist, a youngest theology? You know, there's black theology, there's Asian theology, there's queer theology, Geminist theology, mm-hmm. right? Like youth, a, a youngest or youthist theology might actually be impossible or like against the point of how, how systematic or like whatever liberative theologies work. Well, because it already exists, right? And honestly, this is true for black theology, too, that Cone was, in many ways, the first black theologian to bring black theology to the academy mm-hmm. and to write about it in that context and, and expressly uh, define the bounds of black theology. Mm. But he was certainly not the first to produce a theology that was humanizing of the black experience, mm. that recognized God's place within the black context, within the black story. Right that was liberative in demonstrating God's defense of the black experience of, of the black community. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately 
recognizing the Imago Dei within blackness. Mm -hmm. Like he was not nearly the first. I mean, even just thinking about um, very early uh, enslaved Africans who had many ways of pushing back against uh, the religion of the oppressor Mm -hmm. in some ways through reclaiming and redeeming Christianity in other ways of pushing against it and becoming Muslim or uh, incorporating conjure these uh, sort of like a a pan-African spirituality into their broader faith expression, Mm -hmm. whether included Christianity or not. Mm -hmm. But in all of that, there is a sense of ownership. There's a sense of power that always steered towards their own dignity. So I, I think you can produce theology without it becoming part of the academy, without it becoming adultified, so to speak. You know, like, sure. like I, think, I think, you know, Scott will say, Scott Gronholtz, our friend and youth pastor, my former youth pastor, our coworker in youth ministry, he'll say that youth are prophets. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure he's not the first person to say this. Maybe even Kennedy says this. Yeah. Um, but to think about the prophetic voice of children, what they are speaking to us, reminding us, is a theological production. You know, they're... Yeah. At the very least, even if it's not constructive, it is uh, reorienting, right? It, it's turning us back to the truth that already exists within our midst. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that truth is the journey of authenticity. Kids, correct me if I'm wrong, if you feel differently, but I feel like kids are nothing if not authentic. Like inauthenticity is something that is learned and it's learned partially through trauma, but partially through uh, a culture that tells us that we have to perform. And I know performativity doesn't necessarily mean inauthenticity from you coming from your theater background, but this idea of... Your question the other day was so interesting to me. Um. But this idea of putting on a, a fakeness, a certain persona, a certain not-self yeah. is something that youth and potentially teenagers most rebel against. You know, that they crave authenticity. They crave realness and, and rebel against fakeness. And I think that is one of the main aspects of their prophetic witness and what we could potentially consider youth theology yeah, is this drive toward the authentic? I would I would counter that with the singularity of the authentic, and say that it's an exploration. And I think this is a part of youth is the multifacetedness, the yeah. exploration that we're not looking for one answer. Yeah, that that, and this is just my general thing about like quote unquote performativity, even like gender performativity. It's not a it's not a facade. Like it's not mm-hmm. necessarily a mask. It is. It is our skins, mm. um, our like layers, our layers, our like an onion. That <laughs> um, even code switching, like if it, like there's there's laborious ways to have to code switch and sure. stuff. But like, I love all all my sorts. I love many of my sorts of facets and and, and you exist authentic. differently in different spaces, and yeah. it doesn't mean that you're not authentic. Right, right, yeah, right. yeah. Um, but but I I hear you like. Teenagers are expert BS sniffers. Maybe this is one of the things that makes, quote-unquote, a youth theology potentially one of the most Christian is that it is it, it, it is only passed on experientially or it is only experienced. It's not even necessarily passed on. It cannot be codified because if you're black, you're, you are black your whole life. 
um, if you're queer, presumably you're not going to stop being queer. Like, uh, whereas if you're a youth and you're embodying the theology and, and the, the godness that is represented, represented by youth and whatever, you will grow up. Like, mm-hmm. maybe you shouldn't in some ways, and that's the call of that Jesus has, is be like a child, remain like a child. Mm-hmm. But we will all grow up. And so it's kind of, it's such an interesting, automatically mercurial, and yet entirely incarnated, entirely imminent theology. Mm. It has to be lived, and it has to be lived today, because otherwise it's gone tomorrow. Yeah, it, it, that is fleeting. You know, it that's is, it so is, much uh... of humanity, and that's <laughs> so much of God. Yeah. I wonder if there's a way to parallel this to what we were talking about earlier about approaching death and having a perspective on life, that if there's a way of recognizing what we're losing as we cease to be children and reflecting back then on childhood in that again in that regard. Well, it can't be desperate. Right? Like there's there's that other side of the balance, the the like conservative oldness of like back in my day. Mm-hmm. Like that's that would be taking that idea too far. Trying to hold on to it rather than living into the next mode of mm. imminent like youth. Like youth part of what we makes shouldn't have a scarcity about our youth. Right. Yeah. Right. Because presumably if Jesus calls us to it, it's a thing we can return to or can live into. And so this is where I kind of want to like, we can, I don't know, end or just mm. move into next is, is maturity, mm. right? We often talk on this podcast and, and it's one of my favorite images. I think it's one of the ones that I don't come up with a lot of stuff. Um, I'm more of a synthesizer, but I think that at least independently, may, other people may have thought of this, but the idea of Eden as an infancy mm-hmm. is a huge part of my theology. We are meant to grow up, yeah. but that doesn't mean we lose what is perfect, right? Like I, I often say, like, breast milk is perfect. Mm. Like the, the problem with ageism um, is that it's holding one thing better than another, Right. And I wouldn't want to just flip it. Like this is the problem with some of the ways that people can take the first will be last, last will be first theologies or like every valley exalted, every mountain made low. Like it's not just shall be exalted. And every mountain made low. That the issue is not just a one eighty flip. It's not just a reversal. Well, yeah, I mean, I think this ties to the intergenerationality, too, that we look to all ages as having something to offer. And I think the issue, as you mentioned with ageism, is that we value and regard one age as being superior to the others. Right. That suddenly uh, our peak performativity within a capitalist work-focused culture right, uh, is when we are at our highest value. Or this idea of like um, peak fertility, mm-hmm. right? And in some ways being uh, demonstrative of, of human beauty. And then all products attempting to make us either look older when we're younger and then once we pass that point, look pause, younger. Pause, pause, hold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this desperation. One of the big things that I think has to be said if we're talking about age and maturity and all of these things is that... 
there's no guarantee that being old equates to being wise or mature that you can have some very very young very wise or very mature people sure again i i do think it comes down to what we consider wisdom like to me wisdom is a pretty broad umbrella mm-hmm. and the type of wisdom that comes from one's rec- reckoning with their mortality even if you don't have specific words for it, I do think that there is a kind of wisdom that potentially is just embodied and nothing more. Um, it's kind of like the idea of um, the wisdom of, say, the black experience. That's a wisdom that I can never experientially know, even if I can articulate somewhat from a, from the periphery in what I've learned from people that I've read and friends that I've spoken with and such. But regardless of how like eloquent someone is their experience is still something that they have ultimate say over like that is their truth and i think there's wisdom in their truth and their lived experience in a way that i think old people every old person knows what it is to be old right sure i guess i don't necessarily see the value in that well the value in that is that inherently um, you know rather than pr- privileging a certain methodology of communication of saying you you need to be able to help me understand that experientially relationship is is a place where that wisdom can be transferred that even just in witnessing the way that you live your life like here's maybe a better example children before they start speaking there's still a wisdom about their intuition uh so again the example of like a child who's like crying out for its mother's breast i think there's a lot that we can learn from that now that child can't communicate that to us in verbal language yet of why it's important to them. It just is. Same as like the wisdom that we get from the trees or the the creek. Yeah, I'm using wisdom in a very different sense of the word. Like that one, that one works. That one's that one's fine. It's beautiful in many different in in all sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. I think I'm talking about something that is communally transferable or even just identifiable. Something that's Maybe a little, right? Because if it's just natural, if it's like, oh, everything has the wisdom of itself, like, okay, well, then that just becomes a default. Like, I mean, maybe it's important to identify that a tree has tree wisdom and a baby has baby wisdom and an old person has old person wisdom. Um, But if that's the case, then the only extent, at least, I'm trying not to be dismissive. (laughs) I was at least just, I was thinking of, of something else. The idea of, like, if everything has wisdom, why would we need someone else's wisdom? No. No, it's more like, it, feel, it feels like saying, ah, this square has squareness, and the triangle has triangleness, and I'm like, oh, duh, okay? <laughs> Sorry, this is sounding so much more flippant than I want it no, to. No, no, but I, I hear that, but at the same time, if the square has squareness, why does that squareness matter to you? Like, like what can you benefit how how can you be shaped and formed and and deepened by its squareness that right. to me is the conversation and it's only beneficial if it's either transferable to me in some sort of way or if i'm denying their having of that wisdom like if we which happens a lot if we deny the wisdom of youth then we are deny or or if we deny the wisdom of old age or or whatever it is then Yes, that is a thing we need to be reminded of. But I'm I'm 
I think it's important to notice when people have uncommon wisdom or mm-hmm. uncommon maturity. Mm-hmm. This is me just like pointing out exceptions. I think exceptions are highly notable. Like I, I think it says something and we notice it when like there's an old older person who like you think would have like would be mature. Like there's something like that hurts my heart when I see an old person who just isn't very mature or something that just rejoices in my heart about a, a young person who like, wow, you are incredibly like wise and mature for your age and you don't have to be like it's, it's a grace that you are. And I think that's worth like celebrating or lamenting. That that kind of exception stuff is what I'm pointing so out. So how does one attain maturity and what is our standard for maturity? I don't know. I think I think of wisdom to some extent and maturity as like problem solving skills. Like knowing how to apply knowledge or apply experience so that it is helpful to you or more specifically communally to other people. Presumably like you can get to it through difficult experiences. But I again I wouldn't want to like hover too much around the idea of like redemptive suffering mm-hmm. in that, but it's I don't think it's necessarily a thing that can be like taught or given. Like the the book of James, which is the New Testament equivalent of Proverbs, <laughs> if anything is, which ironically is my favorite book of the New Testament. It's pretty hmm. great. Yeah. Um, that one says, like, if you ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom, it's one of the promises in the New Testament that that she'll give it to you. So that's nice. Well, then I'm curious why not everyone has wisdom. Is this something that they haven't asked for? Because that, that starts to sound almost like prosperity gospel. Or victim blamey. Sure. Like, you're just unwise because you don't, you're not trying hard enough. Or you're not asking for it. I don't know. And if we look at wisdom as being a certain gifting, a blessing, as you said earlier, how do we relate to that? Is that something that we should be out identifying wise people? Or maybe, rather than claiming some as wise and some not, identifying the specific wisdom within each person? Not needing it all to be equal, necessarily, but... Right. You know, yeah, I mean, I th- it's all think, spiritual gifts, right? I think someone can have certain areas of their life in which they have great wisdom and other areas in their life where they don't. <laughs> Preach. <laughs> Why am I so stupid in some ways? But it's, not a, it's not about stupidity. And again, I think knowledge and wisdom are very different in that I think knowledge is the information that we have retained. If you can talk about something, communicate something that is a demonstration of knowledge and per- potentially also a certain skill set of uh, articulation, but I, I think wisdom s- comes more to the human condition, right? It's it's more about like what does it mean to be human and fulfilled. I think that's a lot more of what wisdom comes down to. Yeah, that would make me cautious, and maybe this is why I'm hearing a little bit of the. Maybe I'm projecting, but I'm I'm hearing a little bit of the anxiety in this idea of like what it might mean for certain people to not have wisdom. But if it's a spiritual gift, like everyone might have a certain amount of it because otherwise you couldn't live. <laughs> like there's a certain amount of embedded whatever wisdom uh, that is appropriate for each age or whatever. But 
if it's a spiritual gift, then not everyone needs to be amazingly wise, right? Some people will be great teachers and not super wise and or mature or whatever in, in sort of other ways. You know, some people might be have the gift of healing or tongues or, or whatever it is. So I'm thinking of it largely in this kind of, well, it's all just a gift from God anyway. And thinking about teaching, thinking about healing, and presumably also hopefully thinking about wisdom as gifts that are not limited to or beneficial only to the individual, mm. but how we exist in community. A healer is only a healer because they heal other people. Yes. A teacher is only a teacher because they teach other people. A wise person could be wise on their own to some extent, but I think there is some incumbency on them to share that wisdom mm-hmm. for the betterment of the community and society. Yeah. And just to tie it back to age real quickly, um, how do you how do you relate to maturity as something in relation to, but still not uh, conflation with age, age and maturity? Yeah, not to, again, non-comparatively. Maybe, maybe kind of to your idea of like, the wisdom that is endemic to a a time of life. Mm-hmm. Right, like breast milk is perfect for a baby. Mm-hmm. Playing is perfect for a young child or and maybe everyone. <laughs> um, so maybe that's not a great example. But like... Well, let's go off the breast milk example, right? Like that there is a time for it and then there is a time for not. Mm-hmm. That... We need to develop. So it's non-hierarchical. Like, there's no judgment if and when it doesn't happen. Sure. Maybe. I don't know. But but recognizing that that maturity offers us something. And it offers us, I would like to say, and again, this is tying back to what I was saying earlier, but that it offers us something of what it means to be human. That none of us fully know, certainly in this society when culture and the hegemony of societal influence and whiteness and you know, all these, these forces, these factors that have been structurally shaped in our society, they influence and determine the way that we live our lives, the way that we consider what it is to be human. We're on a journey of discovering what it is to be human, and I think wisdom might give us insight to that in while we're lost in the sauce yeah is there anything you want to say about your grandfather because that is how you started that's the reason you were thinking about this i want to make sure that if there's anything you wanted to say about that you had a space yeah i mean obviously i'm i'm frustrated particularly when i sense a lack of maturity my my own perception of maturity of course Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm humble enough to to realize that. But, but you only get to, you only get to exhibiting certain behaviors by the time you're 86 or 87, um, because you've practiced them your whole life. Sure. Like there are some ways in which he made choices when he was 20, or younger, uh, or he was exposed to certain ways of thinking that then, you know, right. It's not your fault as an 80 something year old person for having this kind of closed-minded or conservative way of thinking. But it's not inherent to your age, and you can't blame your age. Like, I know some really, really phenomenally open and curious 80-plus-year-olds. Yeah. They're Um, great. 
phenomenal. And it's I think it's because they carry some aspect of of youth with them. Mm. And that means humility and that means dependence and that means openness. Right. And and curiosity. So you at any given moment, you are the person that past you created. Mm. I right? like that. And so even it, with, the, <laughs> with the example of runners, right? Like I, I can't look at even, let's say, a 50-year-old person who mm-hmm. can run marathons like Emily Huff or like an 80-year-old person who can run marathons. You do not just pick up running marathons at 75 yeah. if you haven't done it. No. The rare person might be able to like do a big flip, you know, but but you need but it's a lifelong thing mm-hmm. and you need to practice these things. And that starts every single day. And that's true for maturity as well. I think so. I think so. How does one find the journey toward maturity? I wish I knew. <laughs> I have to think that it it can only take place in community. And that yeah. community needs to demonstrate a breadth of experience, you know, diversity, whether in an intergenerational context, in a racial context, in a gender and queer and sexual context, in even in a species concept, context, thinking about our engagement with the land and with, you know, the more than human world. I think yeah. more than anything, recalling the wisdom that is inherent to children that mm-hmm. we started with, coming back to that. You know, you, you mentioned humility, dependency, curiosity, open-mindedness. I think if we were to hold on to those things, to return to those things, and in community pursue wisdom through the eyes of another, Mm-hmm. I think that is the journey of maturation. I really think that's so that's so essential, right? Even just thinking about the idea of seasoning or marinating, mm. or the idea of an of a a fermentation Ooh. of cheeses of like all of these aged things, mm-hmm. like a fine wine. Right, 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 right. They don't just like they don't just sit there by themselves. It doesn't suddenly become something else. It only becomes mature what it is meant to be by by being in a context by mixing with and maybe even metabolizing mm. Mm. some sort of external thing and and forming it as part of yourself and coming up with something that is then a a, a mature like a, a wine or a cheese or whatever like or kimchi like it it becomes <laughs> this thing kombucha or kombucha, like it becomes this thing through maturation, through yeah. age, through seasoning that is not just itself. Mm-hmm. It is through an interaction with probably some sort of, in in cheese case, like bacteria or uh, like whatever it is, mm-hmm. that is maturation. It's not just getting older. Mm-hmm. It's metabolizing yeah. in community stuff that is different from yourself. And coming out the other end as something delicious. I love that so much. But thinking about that aging process and how we need to know that the goal isn't 
progress for the sake of progress, that it's not about conquest and power in accumulating wisdom mm. in the way that things ferment and often go past the point of what you wanted them to be. Mm. You know, that kombucha, for example, will just become vinegar, mm-hmm. you know, or wine too. Uh, cheese, I'm sure, has a overly developed fermented stage. Mm. And the reason I say that is because I think if we recognize that we are pursuing maturation, not for a sense of superiority in which there's always a sense of scarcity, mm-hmm. but for the point of human thriving. And so that we identify what the tasty food is, what the prize is, and we are moving to that direction so that we can get there and not just plowing ahead to try to get to greater power in our wisdom. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, beloved, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Aging. You have aged a little bit over the course of this episode, and hopefully it's been good aging. It's true. (laughs) So may you find wonder in the mundane, hope amidst the chaos, and comfort in the love that makes you, you. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.